0: At this time, I invite you to stand with me, if you're able, as we read God's Word. This evening's text comes from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. Luke, chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. This is God's holy and infallible word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will endure forever. Let us pray. Oh, great God, we thank you for your holy word. We know that in it we find life and life eternal. We ask that in this evening that the Holy Spirit may uh, use this time here to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, that we may see him afresh in his glory, that we may see him again as the Savior that he is, the one who redeems those who were once self-seekers and gives new life to those who are now his. We thank you and we ask for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's one of the most famous openings in a novel written by the great English author Charles Dickens. And his tale to cities begins with, It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And he then goes on to further detail the paradoxical age that was the French Revolution. What was a time of prosperity for some was a time of despair for others. In in our Texas evening, the Lord Jesus gives us a parable, a tale of two men. But in this tale, Jesus does not simply have uh, this present age in mind, but he Calls us to look to the age to come. It's an age that's not really a paradox, but it gives us a reversal of our lot in this life. This tale of two men comes to us in light of the previous parables, the parable of the shrewd manager. And that parable was met with uh, ridicule and contempt on behalf of the Pharisees due to Jesus' words on wealth. And this sort of response wasn't new. In chapter 15, the Pharisees were grumbling over the radical inclusion of the kingdom of God. Well, now in chapter 16, they are grumbling over the radical life of the kingdom of God. And Luke does something interesting. Just before our passage in in verse 14, he gives us an insight into the, the Pharisees. He clues us into something important about them. They were lovers of money. And they also sought to justify themselves. Jesus introduces this parable in simple enough fashion. That there was a man, a rich man, but not just some random person with wealth. You may know uh, some people like that. They dress plainly, they eat plainly, and you really wouldn't know that they were rich uh, unless you had some sort of special insight into their lives. But the man in our story. He's a man who's dressed in purple in fine linen. This attire reveals something about his importance. Purple and fine linen are the garments worn by people of prominence. And you may remember earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus contrasts the ruggedness of John the Baptist with those who are uh, dressed in splendid clothing and who live in king's courts in chapter 7. When our rich man walks around town, his neighbors know who he is, and they know that he comes from money. He's the one who drives the newest BMW. He recently made renovations on his mansion. And the text also tells us that that he celebrated lavishly on a daily basis. Just imagine the last birthday meal that you had, or perhaps a, a fancy anniversary dinner. This is this man's experience every day of his life. It's quite something to behold. How many of us would like to live a life like that? We might think of billionaires today and just think to ourselves, this person never has to worry about anything. They speak it, and it simply just comes about. It was the best of times for this rich man in our story. But he's not the only man in this parable. Jesus introduces us to the second man in verse 20, and in the Greek text, it simply begins with the word poor. There is a great contrast between these two men in our story. We begin a story with a life of of luxury and prominence, but then the the camera lens zooms back, and, and, and who do we find but a beggar, a poor man. The second man was not only poor, but he was covered with sores. And and we know folks like him as well. We know those who are wealthy, but we also know people in a similar boat as this man. They're in the city. They're in the suburbs, in rural towns as well. They are the people that we try to avoid if we're honest with ourselves. We might make eye contact, but just for a moment, then we'll quickly look away and just pretend like nothing happened. Without the ability to care for himself, this second man was at the mercy of the rich man. Whatever scraps he could eat, he would take. He was not picky, but one has to wonder if he ever enjoyed a meal that filled him up. To make matters worse, Jesus concludes this chapter of the tale of two men by sharing that dogs would come and lick the wounds of this poor man. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You come home after a long day at work or at school, and and who greets you at the door? But your yellow lab spike, and he jumps on you, and he licks your face, and it's a a joyous occasion for you. But that's not the case in this parable. Not in the first century. What Jesus is describing is, is actually adding insult to the poor man's injury. You see, not only is the man unable to, To care for himself, but now we have one of the most detestable animals coming to clean him up. It was the worst of times for the second man in our parable. The rich man and the poor man seemed to have nothing in common. One man was rich, the other poor. One was dressed in purple and fine linen, the other dressed in sores. One man was filled with food lavishly, the other was at the mercy of others to be fed. But I've omitted something. Perhaps you've wondered why I haven't mentioned this yet. Because there is something that the poor man has that the rich man does not. Look at verse 20. This poor man has a name, Lazarus. Lazarus. It's a form of the name Eleazar, which means God helps. This man received virtually no help from those around him. In fact, our text states that he was simply laid at the gate. Maybe he was just thrown there. But there's good news. There's hope. And it's in his name. Lazarus. God helps. These two men appear to have nothing in common in these two verses. But in verse 22, we do find one thing that these two men share. And that is death. And that's not necessarily something that we like to think about, let alone talk about. We hear of scientists seeking to find ways to prolong our lives. We read articles uh, uh, written on the habits or on the resolutions that would help extend your life. And they may succeed, but only for a time. One day, we will all die. It's inevitable, and we won't carry anything with us when that day comes. The rich man and Lazarus share this in common. There is a death that occurs, but that's about all. Even their transition from one life to the next is met with deep contrast. We first hear of the poor man. Lazarus died. We don't read of a funeral For the town, it was simply another insignificant death. It was just one less beggar to worry about. But Jesus describes Lazarus as being lifted by the angels to the side of Abraham. He endured much suffering on earth, but he was placed into his eternal reward. As his name indicated, God did indeed help him. He was brought to where Abraham was. And this is a happy reversal for Lazarus. The sorrows of this life turned to joys in the next life as he experienced fellowship with the man of faith, Father Abraham. Though we don't encounter this in our text, Jesus does tell us elsewhere in Matthew 8 that those who recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do so in the kingdom of heaven. This is paradise for Lazarus. He suffered on earth, but never again. But what of the rich man? If we recall, many of us, may have wanted to have been in his shoes. He had everything. He enjoyed the best of meals. Everything that he wanted, he had. Well, surely he would be there with Abraham and Lazarus, right? He would want to be in heaven, so presumably he would be there. Well, our text tells us that the rich man also died and was buried. He received the accolades of the world. He had a funeral, unlike Lazarus, and this funeral was packed with family, with friends, with those who wanted to be his friends. But when he was brought from one life to the next, he was in torment. He was in Hades. And if we don't like speaking about death, we certainly don't enjoy speaking about hell. But the Lord Jesus spoke about the coming judgment throughout His ministry on earth. It is one of the things He spoke the most about. And so we must reckon with it. We must take it seriously. Death comes upon all. And with death comes judgment. And what do we read but the rich man looking up and seeing the other side of the reversal? The rich man lived a life of comfort and pleasure. But now... He was being tortured in Hades, the place of the dead, seeing Abraham and Lazarus off at a distance. But the question is why? Why does this reversal take place in Jesus' tale of two men? To understand this, we must look at the first request made by the rich man. As soon as the rich man realizes something has gone terribly wrong, he reaches out to Abraham. And it's important to address the elephant in the room. Now there is a coming judgment. Scriptures speak of this, even outside of this parable. But nowhere else do we find any sort of conversation taking place between those in their place of rest and those in their place of torment. So what's happening here? What Jesus is doing is He's seeking to bring us closer into the story. He wants to reel us in, to feel the tension in this scene. And he does so in a way that we can understand, by using figurative language, by expressing this conversation that takes place in Hades and in paradise. And Jesus does this to, re- to reveal the heart of the rich man. And so he calls out to Father Abraham and he, and he gives him his first request. And then actually, it's a command. He gives them a command. And this is all the rich man's ever known. All he's ever had to do was say something, and that something will come about. Even in death, the rich man's perspective had not changed. Those around him were called to serve him. That is what he's grown accustomed to. And who better to serve him than Lazarus? The rich man is in great distress. He's enduring the fire of holy judgment. And so what does he ask of Lazarus? He uses Abraham as the middleman here. And what does he ask for? Something that he wasn't able to give Lazarus himself. Mercy. The rich man obviously recognized Lazarus. But did he do anything for this poor man on earth? Just look at the first few verses of our passage. His abundant wealth and lack of compassion left him spiritually bankrupt. Though he called out to Father Abraham, there would be no mercy for the rich man on that side of eternity. Bringing to mind the previous context, we remember that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And in these parables, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, but he has in mind the Pharisees. They were men of great wealth and of great influence. They used their resources to build themselves up. They did not care for those outside their inner circle, but they were bent on building a kingdom that was centered around themselves. Now, what does the law have to say about such a perspective on life? Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8 gives us a command rooted in God's kindness. If among you... One of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns, you shall not harden your hearts or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him. It's a call to generosity. The rich man had a hardened heart toward Lazarus. The Pharisees were guilty of the same things, whether it was a lame man in need of healing, a tax collector, a sinful woman, Their hearts were cold and merciless. What does this reveal to us about the Pharisees? Well, it reveals a stunning lack of faith in the religious leaders of the day. Lives that did not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Luke chapter 3. And it's ironic that that after John the Baptist says those words, then he continues, And do not begin to call yourselves or, or to say of yourselves that Abraham is your father. Why? Because they did not lead lives in keeping with faith. They lived lives entirely foreign to Father Abraham. So this story is an indictment of the rich man. It's an indictment of the Pharisees. It's a word of warning to those who are listening. Abraham responds to the rich man's request, and he says, son, remember Remember how good you had it. You received your good things. And it's curious, because in this conversation, the rich man is not having a conversation with any random person. He's speaking with the father of faith, Abraham, yes. But he's also speaking with a man who is rich himself. Abraham was exceedingly rich. Which tells us that the judgment that this man is experiencing is not simply due to his wealth. Wealth is not a bad thing in and of itself. A person of faith can enjoy the good things of this life, but not at the expense of his brother. The rich man in our story was enraptured. His inheritance was found in this life and this life only. And so he lived his best life now. And when you treasure the things of this world above the things of the kingdom of God, then you are due for judgment. The rich man reaped what he sowed. That is why he received his reversal. And on the flip side, the poor man Lazarus did not receive his heavenly reward just because he was poor just because he suffered. We we, we do not teach justification by poverty and condemnation by wealth. We are saved by faith and by faith alone. He trusted in the God of Abraham. And so he was brought to that glorious place reserved for God's people. Lazarus endured the bad things of this life in faith. Faith that learned to suffer well. He endured many heavy things in this life, but he did so with patience as he awaited his consolation in paradise. And so this tale of two men could not have been any more opposite. Lazarus died and was carried. The rich man died and was buried. Lazarus enjoyed fellowship and comfort. The rich man experienced fire and torment a reversal of their lot in life. And the tragic thing is is that there is nothing that could be done anymore. There is a great chasm between heaven and hell, and there are no second chances. No one can cross from one end to the other. The rich man chose his portion. Lazarus chose the better one. And after his request is shot down, the rich man pivots. He now begins to think of others. Verse 27, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house. You see, the rich man has five brothers, and they appear to be on a similar path to torment and judgment. They have to be warned. The word used here describes someone with authority, speaking about something with tremendous weight, with tremendous importance. This person has to be listened to. Surely, a man who has died and experienced the life to come is the right man for the job. And who has done this but Lazarus. If he were to speak with them and to tell them of the coming judgment, surely these brothers would snap out of their senses. They would cease to prize the things of this world and look heavenward to the kingdom of God. But the rich man's request, as seemingly selfless as it may be, is unnecessary. His brothers already have an authority to warn them of the coming judgment, to warn them of their ungodly and selfish living. And Abraham tells them, Moses and the prophets, they present to the people of God the will of God. So Abraham responds by saying, let them listen to the scriptures. In Moses and the prophets, God's law is revealed. But not only that, in the conviction of sin, Moses and the prophets uh, lead to the path of salvation. They point to the one who can save them from their sin. Abraham tells the rich man, your brothers have what they need to be warned. But that response is not adequate for the rich man. He is not satisfied by Abraham's answer. And so he responds emphatically in verse 30. No, you're not listening, Abraham. If someone came from the dead, my brothers would listen. I just know it. They don't need words on a scroll. They need something they can see. They need something they can feel. And then I know that they would turn from their ways. If we were to read between the lines of the rich man's response, it almost seems as though he's trying to justify himself in this situation. It's almost like he's saying that the law and the prophets were not enough, but if someone came to him, he knows that would have been enough. He would have changed his ways. Something would have been different. The rich man had the law, but if someone came to him beyond the grave, it would have changed his life. He just knows it. But Abraham responds one last time, and this time definitively. If they they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, and they in fact did not listen to them, is the subtext, then neither will they be persuaded. Abraham doubles down. What they need to be spared of the coming judgment, they already have. What they need to be driven to faith and repentance, they already have, Moses and the prophets. If they didn't listen to them then, they would not be persuaded even if someone would rise from the dead. Did you catch what Abraham did? The rich man simply asked for Lazarus to come from the dead. But Abraham escalates the request. Not only would he come from the realm of the dead, he would rise from the dead. He would return from the dead. Even if that were to happen, nothing would change. His brothers would not listen. And friends, we can be tempted to follow in the footsteps of the rich man and the Pharisees, to be lovers of money, to pursue our own selfish pleasures instead of pursuing the kingdom of God. But there's good news for us because there was indeed a resurrection. There was a history-changing resurrection. Moses and the prophets prophesied of that day when it would come. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has set his face upon Jerusalem, did so to die and to rise for needy sinners like you and me. And in his resurrection, sinners who were once self-seekers, who were once self-kingdom builders, they now have new life, a life that looks past themselves and looks to the age to come. This resurrection changes sinners like you and me who were once tempted to be self-seekers, to build little self-governing kingdoms on earth. And now we are given God's word so that we might live by faith as it works itself out in love, in love for our neighbor. Now, this is not a call to take upon ourselves a, a burden that we can't possibly bear We are not called to save the world and to fix all its problems. But if we look past our own self-made kingdoms and we look to the kingdom to come, if we look past this age and we set our sights on heaven, well, then that opens up our eyes to the Lazarus in need next to us, the one in need of mercy. And this heavenly mindedness actually permeates the way that we live. It changes everything about how we go about in life. And this is no uh, mere moralism. What what we do in this life is not simply rooted in being nice to one another, though that is a good thing to do, to be kind and to be nice. But the right use of our wealth, of our time, our our resources, it, it flows out of the confidence that what we have in heaven is greater than anything that we have now. What awaits us in the next life is more desirable. That is what our actions should be rooted in. And at the beginning of our time, I, I shared how how, how this story was a, a reversal of fortunes. But it's it's not simply a reversal between the poor and the rich. This reversal of fortunes is true of us. Regardless of our financial situation, regardless of our social prominence, our significance, we are those who let goods and kindred go And this mortal life also. Those who live with that perspective, the perspective of the age to come is being greater than this current age, those individuals are closer to Lazarus than they are to the rich man, even if you're wealthy. And as we come to a close this evening, I do want us to reflect on a point of application that is twofold, and that's that of the sufficiency of Scripture. Abraham's parting message is a sobering thought. It reflects on an important truth. Many individuals today look for signs. God, speak to me. God, show yourself. God has already spoken, He has spoken in His Word. Christ has already been revealed in the Scriptures. We don't need to look elsewhere. Because the word, the scriptures, are sufficient for salvation. The scriptures testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And if you don't know the Lord this evening, let me plead with you. Don't look elsewhere. You have everything you need here in the scriptures Where our Lord and Savior is spoken of, He's prophesied of, He's revealed in the scriptures. God's word is sufficient for salvation. So read the word. Ask the Lord for eyes to see and come to Him in faith before it's too late. But, brothers and sisters, that's not all. God's word is sufficient for faith and for salvation but it's also sufficient for life and godliness. And we have to recognize that. God has revealed His will to us as Christians, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. God's Word tells us how we are to live. And this parable does show us the importance of treasuring the things of heaven, the things of the kingdom, over the things of this world. It is those who consider the treasures of the kingdom as more to be desired, who are actually among the poor that Jesus had in mind in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So believe it and live in light of it and know that in Christ we have everything that we need and more. Let us pray. Oh, great God, it can be so tempting to see what this world has to offer and to admire it, to desire it, to treat it as our inheritance. Yet our Lord Jesus Christ does remind us that there is something greater. We have a greater inheritance, a greater portion awaiting us in the life to come. It is indeed found in the kingdom that he is preparing. And we ask that you may help us, Lord. Give us faith. We may trust in these words that our Lord spoke to us. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to cherish our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ above all things. May we count the things that this world has to offer as losses. As we consider Christ our great gain. And may that impact the way that we live, even the way that we serve one another that we may use it as a means to win others to this kingdom perspective. This perspective that treasures you above all else. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.